Well, we have the privilege this morning of looking at the topic of hope, and our passage is from Romans chapter 8. It was read in our assurance of pardon earlier today. Uh, Originally, I was going to look at verses 18 through 30, uh, but as the sermon came together, um, which obviously was after the bulletin was printed, I decided on verses 16 through 25. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning, Romans chapter 8. Verses 16 through 25. And you may notice that this, uh, I'm crossing over one of the editor added um, headlines here in Romans chapter 8. But just a reminder, those are all added later by editors, and we don't necessarily have to pay attention to them, although there is some wisdom in doing so. But this morning, we're going to cross right over one. Uh, So, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes and says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're so grateful for hope. As we'll see, we need hope. And you have so graciously provided hope for us in abundance. May we rest and what you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Viktor Frankl um, was a Holocaust survivor, and he immigrated to the United States, and when he did, he became a psychologist. Now, he wasn't a Christian, uh, but he was able to uh, discern really deep truths because of the suffering that he went through uh, in the internment camp. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which I would commend to all of you. It's not long, uh, but it's filled with uh, powerful truths um, that God showed him in his suffering. And I'd like to read a quote from the book describing life in the concentration camps. He said, The death rate in the week between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supplies or a change of weather or new epidemics. 
It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance and a great number of them died. They died less from lack of food or medicine than from lack of hope, lack of something to live for. So we don't know how long exactly they were in there just from this quote, but you can imagine they had this hopefulness that they'd be free by Christmas, and when that didn't happen, their hopes were dashed, and they all died. You see, hope has the power to keep us alive. And God wants us to know this morning that there is a kind of hope that has the power to keep us alive forever, even though we die. So our outline this morning is this. First, we're going to look at the need for true hope, and then the character of true hope, and finally, the reason for true hope. So we all need hope because we live in a world full of suffering, and if, like those prisoners, we lose hope that our suffering has a purpose or that our suffering will end, we will also lose the will to live, and that's just a fact of life. Now, if we lived in a perfect world where all of our desires and dreams were satisfied, if we never had a sense of longing, if we never experienced pain or sorrow, well, then we wouldn't need hope. Hope, by definition, is open-ended. It's, it's unfulfilled. Hope looks at the world as it is right now and hopes for something different and something better. And the reason hope is such a powerful emotion is because every single human being, no matter what you believe, can look around in this world and recognize that there's something wrong with it. Which means we must put our hope in some kind of promise for better things to come. In the first half of Romans chapter 8, Paul deals with what's wrong inside of every human being, and now in our passage he turns his gaze to what's wrong with the world. And Paul wants us to know that it's not an accident that we live in a world with so much suffering. God actually intends for sinners to live in a world just like that. When God created the world, everything was good. But then Adam, the first man, he sinned. And when the serpent tempted Eve, Adam failed to love and lead and protect and defend his wife. And so Adam and Eve became sinners. And after they became sinners, when they had children, they had more sinners. That's why every single one of us is born thinking we know better than God. But that wasn't all. In addition to becoming sinners, God told Adam this. He says, because you have Listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. There's a lot of ground in the world. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground is cursed. And since Adam 
and Eve were made from the dust of the ground. Not only did they become sinners, but our bodies and all of creation was cursed because of what Adam did. And this is why we have disaster. This is why we have disease. Paul puts it this way in our passage. He says, creation was subjected to futility. That's his way of saying the ground was cursed. Which means things are the way they are because God intentionally forced futility and frustration into the world. Paul tells us creation is also in bondage to corruption. So when I think of corruption, I think of flies and gnats and maggots. I think of rust and rot. I think of something that has the stench of death. And that's what naturally happens now in our world because creation is in bondage to corruption. You see, after Adam sinned, I imagine God could have left things the way they were. We would, we would probably have had plenty of suffering uh, just in our own interpersonal relationships with each other. But God took the extra step and subjected creation to futility. He put all of creation into a state of bondage to corruption on purpose. So that we would all definitely experience disaster and disease as part of life in this fallen world. And in so doing, he made a world where we would need hope just to survive in it. A world where we will have to believe that we'll be free by Christmas if we're going to make it to New Year's. Now, none of us are in a concentration camp, but things are still hard because of trials and temptations. Because of sin and temptation, because of fear and doubt, depression, anxiety. Sometimes I wonder if the emptiness and the longing can be so great, combined with the temptation to do something, anything, to make those feelings go away. It can be and feel unbearable. There's trials outside of us that we bring on ourselves because of our own foolishness or because of what other people do or simply because we live in a world full of death and disease and decay. Paul puts it this way, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Isn't it interesting that the illustration Paul provides to explain what life is like in a fallen world is unending labor with no epidural, because they didn't know of such things back then. And all of creation is groaning together like a woman in labor because of the curse that God has put on it. And it's been like that and it is like that right up until now. That's why the newspaper headlines say the things that they do. So we must hope in something. And we live in a world that has all kinds of things that it offers to us that we can hope in. The world takes all of the good things of this life and tries to convince us that they can satisfy our need for hope. The world takes romance and careers and family and money and politics and experiences, whether that's traveling or skydiving. 
The world is always offering us something to put our hope in. Maybe it's as simple as you'll be free by Christmas. Because we live in a world where we need hope to survive in it. We, we need to believe that there's something just on the horizon. Every advertisement I see on TV is promising me hope. To take away my pain or to give me joy or peace or relief. But what if she breaks up with you? What if you do get married and it's unimaginably hard and the kids are hard and the job isn't what you thought it would be and the whole time the world is saying, well, try a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe that will do the trick. Or give up on romance, pursue your career, spend your life trying to get that guy elected. Maybe he will finally be the one who can unite us all. Probably not. Or give up on romance, just get a divorce. You married the wrong person. You'll meet your soulmate someday. And never once does the world admit that it really has no lasting answer to the sin inside our hearts or the futility and corruption all around us. It's always, well, that didn't work. Well, <laughs> try it again. Try somebody else. Or that didn't work. Try something else, a new job, a new location, a different hobby, a different gender even. Every time, hope springs eternal. Because we have to hope in something or this world will crush us. And I think at the end of the day, that's all depression is, right? It's giving up and telling the world, I'm done. Don't offer me another thing because everything I've put my hope in has failed me. Let me drown my sorrows. And the truth is, no matter how hope-filled we live during this life, everything will eventually be taken away. All of us will one day lay down to die. And false religions can promise life after death, but they can't guarantee it. And this is, this is the way God intends it to be. So Paul is telling us here. God intentionally subjected the world to futility and frustration when he put the world in bondage to corruption. He did that so that we would look for hope that comes from another world. And yes, there are many good things in this world that it's good and right to hope for, but nothing that we can put our hope in because nothing can save us from creation's futility or its bondage to corruption, and nothing in this world can save us from death. So, what is the character of true hope then? Well, the hope the world offers us is not the kind of hope that we can count on. The best someone can get from the world is a fantasy about life after death or more pleasure and less pain. And the world has nothing to offer someone on their deathbed except more morphine. And nothing the world offers is guaranteed. The crops might not grow. Thankfully, in God's grace, they usually do. The stock market could crash at any time. She could stop loving you. The drunk driver could swerve into our lane. The dreaded di diagnosis could come at any moment. 
But what if? What if there is a hope that is so real and so good and so true and so guaranteed that nothing could take it away? A hope with the power to keep you alive for eternity. What if there is a hope that didn't just make all the suffering worth it, but that grows out of the suffering so that the suffering itself leads to the glory. So that all our suffering does is make our hope more real and more good and more true and more guaranteed. What if there's a hope like that that won't just get you to Christmas or New Year's, but that will last forever? Paul begins our passage this morning telling us, For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, so Paul's telling us about something that he's considered, which means he thought about it. He took the whole situation, and based on everything that he, that he knows about life, He's come to a conclusion, a calculation. First, he acknowledges that we do live in a world that is full of suffering. That includes things like death, disease, war, murder, famine, floods, fire, freezing, crime, evil, oppression. It even includes holocausts, genocide, rape, incest, and abortion. That's how bad things are. And Paul looked at all of that, and he calculated that amount of suffering— And his conclusion is that all of that suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That means for for as much as that suffering is awful, our glory that will be revealed to us is infinitely greater. And it's not like the glory replaces the suffering. The glory is not so great that it somehow makes the suffering worth it. No, the glory grows out of the suffering. The glory is a result of the suffering. In the previous verse, Paul says this. He says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Why? In order that we may also be glorified with him. See, we suffer in order to be glorified. Our suffering produces the glory. Now, Paul has not tried to encourage us to go out and seek suffering. What he's telling us is that the suffering that you will experience in this world is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Somehow the glory is harvested out of the suffering. It's the path to glory. So we couldn't have it and we wouldn't have it any other way. It's like suffering is the tree and the glory is the fruit. That's why everything Paul writes in our passage is bubbling over with this hope. That's why when I went through my first point, I didn't read all the verses. I just plucked out the description of the fallen world because if I read all the verses, all the verses just cloud out with hope. Everything about the fallen world. Listen, Paul says, for the creation, right? This this creation that's under the curse, this creation that's subjected to futility and bondage to corruption, 
That creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing is confident expectation because the creation knows that when Christians receive the glory waiting for us, that God is going to renew all things, the futility will be gone, the corruption will be done away with, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself is going to share in our glory and share in our freedom, and it's just waiting for that to happen. It's bubbling over with hope for that day. From the moment God cursed the ground, it's been looking forward with hope Which means that feeling that you and I have that this is not the way it's supposed to be is true. This is not the way things are supposed to be, but God has made it this way in hope for a purpose because he has a plan to make everything new. And not only the creation, he goes on to say, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, So on one hand, we've been adopted into the family of God. But on the other hand, we're still in exile in a foreign country waiting for our Father to come and to take us home. And when that happens, our bodies will be redeemed. Remember, our bodies are made from the dust of the ground. The ground was cursed, right? So when the ground is freed from its bondage to corruption, our bodies will also be redeemed and freed. In the meantime, we, like creation, groan inwardly. We suffer this battle against sin and temptation, trials and tribulations. And the whole time we groan and we wait and we do so with eager expectation for what God is going to do, which is why Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. You see, the kind of salvation that we have in Christ comes with this kind of hope. This hope is like a built-in feature of turning from our sin and putting our faith in Jesus. My first car ever was a 1982 Dodge Colt. It was awesome. It did not come with power steering or air conditioning. None of that was a built-in feature, but now the base model of every car comes with power steering and air conditioning. It's it's a built-in feature. Just like this kind of hope is a built-in feature of our faith. In fact, all hope is, is is taking our faith, putting the glasses of faith on, and then looking into the future with our faith. Which is why Paul goes on to say, Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that word patience could be translated endurance. If we already have what we're hoping for, it's not hope, Paul says. There will be no need for hope once we receive the glory that's waiting for us. But our hope is so real and so good and so true and so guaranteed that we can endure patiently whatever this world brings into our lives because of it. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. He says, now faith is... The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And the world can give us no assurance of anything 
that it wants us to hope for. There are many wonderful things in this world, many good gifts God wants us to enjoy. And in a sense, we can see other people happily married or on vacation or in their dream job or their dream home, especially uh, on social media. But there's no assurance that any of those things will be ours or if we have them, that they will last. But the kind of hope we have in Christ is a sure hope. It's guaranteed even though we don't see it. But how? What makes Christianity different from the false religions that I mentioned earlier that promise a fantasy of life after death but can't guarantee it? How is it, how is it that we can be sure of our hope? How is it that we can possess a hope that no matter what happens to us only increases our confidence in it? takes us to our third point. What reason do we have for true hope? Like we said already, we need hope because we live in a world where hope is necessary to survive. But worldly hope is just one string of promises after another, none of which are guaranteed, none of which can last, nor will any of them fully relieve our suffering. And then there's this hope in Christ— the kind of hope that promises us his presence with us now and future glory that will grow out of our suffering, which means every bit of suffering we experience in this life is meaningful and has purpose and is totally worth it. We have hope that our bodies and all of creation will be renewed when we're fully adopted when we receive the glory of the inheritance of the sons of God. And this is a sure hope. It's the kind of hope that comes with our salvation the moment we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. This hope is downloaded right into our hearts. So how can we be guaranteed of such a wonderful hope if we can't see it? Well, there's two ways we can know for sure this hope is ours. First, is because of what God has done outside of us. Which brings us to Advent. And 2,000 years ago, this young woman named Mary, who was betrothed to her husband Joseph, she found out that even though she was a virgin, that she was pregnant with a child, she was going to have a baby, and that that baby would be God's son. And when that baby came... She was in a town called Bethlehem in a manger, and outside were some shepherds watching their flocks, and all of a sudden, angels appeared. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, every year at Advent we remember that God sent hope into the world. And that our hope is built on the fact that God appeared among us and became one of us. He came to us humble, lying in a manger, 
And he's the creator of all things, yet he comes to us as a child at Christmas to remind us that God loved the world so much that God the Father sent God the Son to come and to bear our suffering. In fact, he became the ultimate victim of all of our suffering because unlike all of us, he does not deserve it. And yet he willingly bore all of our sorrows. We remember that he came to die for the sins of his people and that his entire life becomes a gift to everyone who believes. The glory that we inherit is the glory that Jesus earned for us. This is why our hope is sure. It's built on historical facts and fulfilled prophecies. But in our passage today, Paul gives us another reason that we can know for sure that our hope is secure. And the second reason is because of what God has done inside of us. Paul tells us the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So to bear witness means to give testimony. And God's Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. So our spirit is bearing witness. And then God's Spirit comes and bears witness as well. So the witness that our spirit bears is when God regenerates our hearts, we turn to him in faith, we receive salvation, we become a new creation, we become something different. All of a sudden, all of a sudden our thoughts and our mind are not uh, set on things of this world, but we're set on heavenly things. We, we come to a place where we love God and we, we love other Christians and we hate our sin. So our spirit testifies to us that we are a, children of, a child of God, but then God's spirit comes in and says, yes, you are. Yes, you are a child of God. Later, Paul says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul calls the fact that, his, or that God's Spirit comes and bears witness to our spirit. That's, that's the Spirit coming and living inside us. Paul calls this the first fruits of the Spirit. And first fruits is the, when you go, I'm not a farmer, but my understanding is that when you go and you harvest and you bring in the first fruits, that's the beginning of the harvest. And what that is, it's a promise that there's more harvest to come. So the first fruits of the Spirit of God living inside us is a promise that there's glory to come. And we put our trust in the promise of God. He gives us his Spirit to come as a promise of more. He puts it this way in Ephesians. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is this first fruits inside us of the harvest of this glory, promising us more glory. Paul tells us that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the down payment that we really do have a hope that is so real and so good and so true and so guaranteed that nothing can take away, no matter what happens to us in life, even if the drunk driver swerves into our lane. Even when we come to lay down and die. 
In fact, we have a hope that is so real and good and true and guaranteed that all suffering does is make it more real and more good and more true and more guaranteed. As we wait for the glory that will grow out of it. And we know this hope is ours because God became a baby in a manger, because the baby became a man on the cross, and because that man rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and gave us his spirit to live inside us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess that we need this hope. We're so desperate for it, God. Every single one of us in this room daily struggles against our own flesh, against the world, and against the devil. We deal with shame and guilt and frustration and futility. We deal with relationships that are hard. We deal with so much struggle. We look around in the world and we see suffering that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. And yet, God, we have the blessed hope that you became one of us. You bore our suffering and you've granted us your spirit by faith. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.